Hey everybody, C-Note here, and welcome to Dopamine, the show that is like the earth, not flat. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about this YouTube video that I watched about the mathematics of love. Uh, essentially, it is a way of understanding a way that, like, cold hard facts, uh, which is... I shouldn't even say cold hard facts because I think there's a, a, a misconception that facts and information are truly just cold and stoic and um, uh, un unempathizing. Like there's no way to look at facts as something that can guide us in an emotional way. Um, and the mathematics of love really is, finds a way, or I should say the presentation of it, finds a way to appeal to humanity's sensibilities while talking numbers and facts. And it really marries that notion of like, yes, using facts and information, but also relying on your instincts and relying on um, the variables in life when it comes to emotions and people and locations and interests, uh, traditions, things like that. Um, so it, I thought it was a really well done uh, TED Talk. So if you want to look that up, you can check it out yourself. But I'm probably likely just going to introduce it and then play uh, the, the TED talk so you can listen to it. And then we can talk about it a little bit afterwards. Um, so that's something I wanted to share with you guys today. And, uh, without further ado, here comes the mathematics of love. Drums, Okay, so welcome to the show. Today I wanted to share with you a TED Talk, or yeah, I'm just going to play the whole thing, uh, called The Mathematics of Love, which is a really, really great way of showing that love is not just all emotions, touchy-feely, romanticism. Sometimes we can get caught up in our feelings and not make good decisions. As a result of that, the mathematics of love really allows us to take a look at the kind of the odds of finding love in the modern world, um, what it's like to navigate those worlds with a bit of a mathematical mindset, because some of us are very logic and math based and others of us are very feelings based. And, um, like most things in life, I think the happiness tends to lie in the middle somewhere where we find some way to not go too far into the logic spectrum where we might ignore someone that makes us feel good. Um, but might not logically add up to all of our specific wants and needs, <laughs> Tinder, uh, and then something where, you know, you go a little bit too emotional and you're relying too much on your feelings and you end up with somebody who is not a good practical partner, <laughs> Tinder. And, um, <laughs> I mean, it could really, yeah, you could find all sorts of terrible things on Tinder. That was kind of my point there. Um, so really it's, it's kind of about using a little bit of both sides of the brain to find someone who is a good logical fit for you and where your path is in life. Uh, analyzing your core values, but then also looking at how you feel emotionally connected to that person um, and finding the finding the middle ground between the pragmatic and, you know, sweet, sweet love. So without further ado, I'm going to play the mathematics of love and then I'll come back and talk a little bit about it.
Today I want to talk to you about the mathematics of love. Now, I think that we can all agree that mathematicians are famously excellent at finding love. Um, but it's not just because of our dashing personalities, superior uh, conversational skills, and excellent pencil cases. Um, it's also because we've actually done an awful lot of work into the maths of how to find the perfect partner. Now, in my favorite paper on the subject, which is entitled, uh, Why I Don't Have a Girlfriend, <laughs> um, Peter Backus tries to rate his chances of finding love. Now, Peter's not a very greedy man. Of all of the available women in the UK, all Peter's looking for is somebody who lives near him, somebody the right age range, somebody with a university degree, somebody who's likely to get on well with, somebody who's likely to be attractive, somebody who's likely to find him attractive. <laughs> and comes up with an estimate of 26 women in the whole of the UK. It's not looking very good, is it, Peter? Um, now, just to put that into perspective, that's about 400 times fewer than the best estimates for how many intelligent extraterrestrial life forms there are. Um, and it also gives Peter a 1 in 285,000 chance of bumping into any one of these special ladies on a given night out. Um, I like to think that's why mathematicians just don't really bother going on nights out anymore. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that I personally don't subscribe to such a pessimistic view, because I know, just as well as all you do, that love doesn't really work like that. Human emotion isn't neatly ordered and rational and easily predictable. But I also know that that doesn't mean that mathematics hasn't got something that it can offer us, because love, as with most of life, is full of patterns. And mathematics is ultimately, ultimately all about the study of patterns. Patterns from predicting the weather to the fluctuations in the stock market to the movement of the planets or the growth of cities. And if we're being honest, none of those things are exactly neatly ordered and easily predictable either. Because I believe that mathematics is so powerful that it has the potential to offer us a new way of looking at almost anything, even something as mysterious as love. And so, to try and persuade you of how totally amazing, excellent, and relevant mathematics is, I want to give you my top three mathematically verifiable tips <laughs> for love. Okay? <laughs> okay, so, top tip number one, how to win at online dating. <laughs> okay, so my uh, favorite online dating website is OkCupid, not least because it was started by a group of mathematicians. Now, because they're mathematicians, they have been collecting data on everybody who uses their site for almost a decade. And they've been trying to search for patterns in the way that we talk about ourselves and the way that we interact with each other on an online dating website. And they've come up with some seriously interesting findings. But my particular favorite is that it turns out that on an online dating website, how attractive you are does not dictate how popular you are. And actually, having people think that you're ugly can work to your advantage. <laughs> exactly. Let me show you how this works. Okay, 
So, in a uh, thankfully voluntary section um, of OkCupid, okay uh, you are allowed to rate how attractive you think people are on a scale between one and five. Now, if we compare this score, the average score, um, to how many messages a, a selection of people receive, you can begin to get a sense of how attractiveness links to uh, popularity on an online dating website. Now, so this is the graph um, that the OkCupid okay guys have come up with. And the important thing to notice is that it's not totally true that the more attractive you are, the more messages you get. But the question arises then of what is it about people up here who are so much more popular than people down here, even though they have the same score of attractiveness. And the reason why is that it's not just straightforward looks that are important. Okay, so let me try and illustrate their findings with an example. So if you take someone like uh, Portia de Rossi, for example. Um, now, everybody agrees that Portia de Rossi is a very beautiful woman. Uh, nobody thinks that she's ugly, but she's not a supermodel either. Now, if you compare Portia de Rossi to someone like Sarah Jessica Parker. Now, a lot of people, um, myself included, I should say, think that Sarah Jessica Parker is seriously fabulous um, and possibly one of the most beautiful creatures to have ever walked on the face of the earth. Um, but some other people, i.e. most of the internet, <laughs> seem to think she looks a bit like a horse. Um, <laughs> now, I, I think that if you ask people how attractive they thought Sarah Jessica Parker or Portia Rossi were, um, and you ask them to, to uh, give them a score between one and five, I reckon they'd average out to have roughly the same score. But the way that people would vote would be very different. So Portia's scores would all be clustered around the four because everybody agrees on, on that she's very beautiful. Whereas Sarah Jessica Parker completely divides opinion. There'd be a huge spread in her scores. And actually, it's this spread that counts, and it's this spread that makes you more popular on an online internet dating website. So what that means then is that if some people think that you're attractive, you're actually better off having some other people think that you're a massive minger. That's much better than everybody just thinking that you're the cute girl next door. Now, I think this begins to make a bit more sense when you think in terms of the people who are sending these messages. Um, so let's say that you think somebody's attractive, um, but you suspect that other people uh, won't necessarily be that interested. That means there's less competition for you, and it's an extra incentive for you to get in touch. Whereas compare that to if you think somebody's attractive, but you suspect that everybody's going to think they're attractive. Well, why would you bother humiliating yourself, let's be honest? Um, but here's where the really interesting part comes, because when people choose the pictures that they use in an online dating website, they often try and minimize the things that they think some people will find unattractive. So the classic example is um, people who are perhaps a little bit overweight, deliberately choosing a very cropped photo. <laughs> or bald men, for example, uh, deliberately choosing pictures where they're wearing hats. Um, but actually, this is the opposite of what you should do if you want to be successful. You should really, instead, play up to whatever it is that makes you different, even if you think that some people will find, you find it unattractive. Because the people who fancy you are just going to fancy you anyway, and the unimportant losers who don't, well, they only play up to your advantage. Okay, top tip number two, now how to pick the perfect partner. So let's imagine, then, that you're a roaring success um, on the dating scene. But the question arises of how do you then convert that success um, into longer-term happiness? And in particular, how do you decide when is the right time to settle down? Um, now, generally, it's not advisable to just cash in and marry the first person who comes along and shows you any interest at all. Um, but equally, you don't really want to leave it too long 
uh, if you want to maximize your chance of long-term happiness. As uh, my favorite author, um, Jane Austen, puts it, an unmarried woman of seven and 20 can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Jane. What do you know about love? Um, <laughs> Uh, but okay, so the question is then, um, how do you know when is the right time to settle down, given all the people that you could date in your lifetime? Now, thankfully, there's a rather delicious bit of mathematics that we can use to help us out here called optimal stopping theory. Um, okay, so let's imagine then that you start dating when you're 15, um, and ideally, you'd like to be married by the time that you're 35. And there's a number of people that you could potentially date across your lifetime, and they'll be at kind of varying levels of goodness. Now, the rules are that once you cash in and get married, you can't look ahead to see what you could have had. Um, and equally, you can't go back and change your mind, uh, in my experience at least. Uh, I find that typically people don't much like being recalled years, up, years after uh, being passed up for somebody else. Um, that's just me. Um, okay, so the math says then that what you should do in the first 37% of your dating window, you should just reject everybody as serious marriage potential. <laughs> <laughs> and then you should pick the next person that comes along that is better than everybody that you've seen before. So um, here's the example. Now, if you do this, it can be mathematically proven, in fact, that this is the best possible way of maximizing your chances of finding um, the perfect partner. Um, now, unfortunately, um, I have to tell you that this method does come with some risks. Um, for instance, uh, imagine if your perfect partner appeared uh, during your first 37%. Uh, now, unfortunately, you'd have to reject them. Um, <laughs> uh, now, if you are following the math, I'm afraid no one else comes along that's better than anyone you've seen before, so you have to go on rejecting everyone um, and die alone. Um, probably surrounded by cats, um, nibbling at your remains. Um, okay, <laughs> another risk. Uh, is let's imagine um, instead that uh, the first people that you dated in your first 37% uh, are just incredibly dull, boring, terrible people. Now, that's okay because you're in your rejection phase, so that's fine. Uh, you can reject them. Um, but then imagine the next person to come along is just marginally less boring, dull, and terrible <laughs> than everybody that you've seen before. Now, if you are following the math, I'm afraid you have to marry them. Um, <laughs> and end up in a relationship which is frankly suboptimal. Uh, sorry about that. But I do think that there's an opportunity here for Hallmark to cash in on, um, to really cater for this market. A Valentine's Day card like this. Um, <laughs> my darling husband, you are marginally less terrible than the first 37% of people that I dated. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> it's actually more romantic than I normally manage. Um, <laughs> okay, so... This method uh, doesn't give you a 100% success rate, but there's no other possible strategy that can do any better. And actually, um, in the wild, there are uh, certain types of fish which follow and employ this exact strategy. So they reject every possible suitor that turns up in the first 37% of the mating season, and then they pick the next fish that comes along after that window that's, um, I don't know, bigger and burlier than all of the fish that they've seen before. And I also think that subconsciously, Humans, or, or we do sort of do this anyway, so we have give ourselves a little bit of time to kind of play the field, get a feel for the marketplace or whatever when we're, when we're young. And then we start looking, we only start looking seriously at, at potential marriage candidates once we hit our mid to late 20s. And I think this is a conclusive proof, if ever it were needed, that everybody's brains are pre-wired to be just a little bit mathematical. 
Um, okay, so that was top tip number two. Now top tip number three, how to avoid divorce. Okay, so let's imagine then that you picked your perfect partner and you're settling into a, a lifelong um, relationship with them. Um, now, I like to think that everybody would ideally like to avoid divorce, apart from, I don't know, uh, Piers Morgan's wife, maybe. Um, but it's a sad fact of modern life that uh, one in two marriages in the, in the States uh, end in divorce, with the rest of the world not being uh, far behind. Um, now, you could be forgiven, perhaps, for thinking that the arguments that precede a, a marital breakup are not an ideal candidate for mathematical investigation. For one thing, it's very hard to know uh, what you should be measuring or what you should be quantifying. But this didn't stop um, a psychologist, uh, John Gottman, um, who, who did exactly that. And he observed, Gottman observed hundreds of couples um, having a conversation and recorded, well, everything you can think of. So he recorded what was said in the conversation, he recorded um, their skin conductivity, he recorded their facial expressions, their um, heart rates, their blood pressure, basically everything apart from whether or not the wife was actually always right. Um, which, incidentally, she totally is. So... Um. <laughs> But what Gottman found, what Gottman and his team found, was that one of the most important predictors for whether or not a couple were going to get divorced was how positive or negative each partner was being um, in the conversation. Now, couples that were very low risk scored a lot more positive points on Gottman's scale than negative, whereas uh, bad relationships, um, by which I mean probably going to get divorced, uh, they found themselves getting into a spiral of negativity. Now, just by using these very simple ideas, Gottman and his group uh, were able to predict whether a given couple was going to get divorced with a 90% accuracy. But it wasn't until he teamed up with the mathematician James Murray that they really started to understand what causes these negativity spirals and how they occur. And the results that they found, I think, are just incredibly, impressively uh, simple and interesting. Okay, so these equations, they predict how the wife or husband is going to respond in their next turn in the conversation, how positive or negative they're going to be. And these equations, they depend on um, the mood of the person when they're on their own, the mood of the person when they're with their partner, but most importantly, they depend on how much the husband and wife influence one another. Now, I think it's important to point out at this stage that these exact equations have also been shown to be perfectly able at describing what happens between two countries in an arms race. <laughs> so that an arguing couple spiraling into negativity and teetering on the brink of divorce is actually mathematically equivalent to the beginning of a nuclear war. <laughs> um, but the really important term in this equation is the influence that people have on one another, and in particular, something called the negativity threshold. Now, the negativity threshold, um, you can think of as uh, how annoying the husband can be before the wife starts to get really pissed off, basically, um, and vice versa. Now, I always thought that good marriages were about compromise and understanding um, and allowing the person to have space to be themselves. So I would have thought that perhaps the most successful relationships were ones where there was a really high negativity threshold where couples let things go and only brought things up if they really were a big deal. But actually, the mathematics and subsequent findings by the team have shown that the exact opposite is true. The best couples or the most successful couples are the ones with a really low negativity threshold. 
These are the couples that don't let anything go unnoticed and allow each other some room to complain. These are the couples that are continually trying to repair their own relationship, um, that have a much more positive outlook on their marriage. Couples that don't let things go um, and couples that uh, don't let trivial things end up being a really big deal. Now, of course, um, it takes a, a bit more than just a, a low negativity threshold and uh, not compromising to, to have a successful relationship. Um, but I think that uh, it's, it's quite interesting to know that there is really mathematical evidence to say that you should never let the sun go down on your anger. Um, okay, so those are my top three tips of um, how maths can help you with uh, love and relationships. But I hope, that aside from their use as tips, they also give you a little bit of insight into the power of mathematics. Because for me, equations and symbols aren't just um, a thing. They're a voice that speaks out about the incredible richness of nature and the startling simplicity in the patterns that twist and turn and warp and evolve all around us, from how the world works to how we behave. And so I hope that perhaps for just a couple of you, a little bit of insight into the mathematics of love can persuade you to have a little bit more love for mathematics. Thank you. So one of my favorite aspects of the mathematics of love talk was really defining the uh, how you present yourself to people or the best way to present yourself to people uh giving the example of uh Portia de Rossi and uh uh, uh why can't I remember? I just I did, just listened to it and I can't remember uh Sarah Jessica Parker yeah there you go uh the comparing those two um you know one who is more universally seen as attractive versus one who's a little bit more divisively seen as attractive uh, that is kind of interesting on its own because I, I'm not the most attractive person, but I'm not an ugly person. So I feel like that's worked in my favor and it's kind of interesting to see that, uh, statistically being kind of worked out. Um, and interesting to, as a way to kind of give people <clears throat> advice on how to present themselves. I think, you know, we think about it a lot in a business sense that it's like, oh, we should be our authentic selves. We should put ourselves out there. We attract the people that we want to attract. And it goes the same way for love. So if we want someone who wants us to wear a hat all the time because we're bald, then, you know, we might end up attracting someone because we present that in our pictures. And then they might see you bald and it might not go so well. <laughs> they might not like that, you know, uh, present who you are and you'll find the people that want you uh, in their lives. So I, I thought that was really interesting that this spread of, of like and dislike can help define a better average versus someone who is overly attractive um, might be a little bit more of a, a threat. You know, you might obviously be with them, but then you'll feel a lot more insecurity and you'll feel like, um, you know, you'll feel like uh, uh, more suitors are going to come after them. And you you might logically explain to yourself that it might not be worth it. Um, not saying we shouldn't go after attractive people or unattractive people. Um, you know, it just kind of takes a certain level of uh, 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 a certain level of above average confidence to likely uh, be with a very 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 attractive person and be ready to kind of handle those suitors in a way or have uh, or be able to have a very strong sense of trust and loyalty 
if you're a very jealous person, then it's not going to work out with a very attractive person. That's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so yeah, all of those, uh, uh, all of those things are really interesting. I love the idea of like just not marrying anyone before, what was it? 23, I think it was, or the first 30, some people that you come across, <laughs> um, the first few people that you come across, was it there? I don't know. I don't remember the number. The first people that you come across and, uh, you know, uh, and anybody after that point that starts to feel good, you, you can go with them, but you know, that's the, not a foolproof thing either. So uh, it's tough. You got to trust your gut you got to make some, you got to take some risks is I think what the point was there. Um, but also, you know, I want to add that, uh, when it comes to making those decisions, like marriage is not a hundred percent thing. I mean, you want to improve your chances and of course everyone wants to live happily ever after. Um, but people make mistakes. Sometimes we marry the wrong people and we have to abandon ship and readjust. You're not a failure if that happens. Um, and there are other possibilities out there for you. So, you know, regardless of what the math says, uh, there is the opportunity to find someone who's better for you as you start to improve and learn who you are. I think a lot of people marry, end up, end up marrying young and, uh, or maybe for the wrong reasons, you know, whether they, you know, for me, I felt like I make, made an emotional decision as opposed to a more logical one. Uh, and then when I was deep, deep in it, some of the logical, um, fallacies of my brain kind of kept me in it when I didn't want to be in it anymore. So, you know, point is none of this is like tried and true, perfect logic, but you know, you gotta be willing to throw yourself out there, learn how to be your most honest self, honest self, and then you'll attract the people you want to attract. So with that, I'm going to wrap this up. I would love to hear how, what you thought about the mathematics of love. It's one of my favorite, uh, Ted talks in history because it really defines how I think as a person a lot of great logic there that is quite wonderful. So, um, yeah, that's it. I'm going to wrap this up and I'll talk to you guys later. Hey, you beautiful human. Thanks for listening to dopamine. I really appreciate it. If you thought this was a dope show, then you should wait until next week. But also while you wait, you should go to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a positive review. Positive reviews help me to uh, fill up my dopamine tank. Otherwise you can send your friends to dopamine.life to listen to the show or hi, my name is Christian.com to get the latest updates. I'll catch you later. Baby, I'm a fiend. I'm a fiend. Oh, you know, you got me going off your dopamine. All I really need, all I need is for you to put me on to the recipe. It's a my thing. You got me going off your dopamine. Yeah, it's a my thing. You got me going off your dopamine.